but how do we get away from you know how do we get away from a desire to uh, that I think exists amongst many for uh, recognition to come through column inches and prizes and so on how do we escape that hello and welcome again to what do buildings do all day a podcast about the matter of people and buildings and buildings that matter my name is Emmett Scanlon and this is episode 33. In the episode I speak to Zoe Berman of Studio Berman. Zoe is an architect, a university lecturer, and she has lectured on design and equity and written for the RABA journal, Blueprint Magazine and Architecture Today. Zoe is one of the founding members of the Part W Collective, which describes itself as a collective of engaged and proactive women working in design education, architecture, planning, engineering, policy, infrastructure and sustainability. Founded in 2018, the collective says it is intergenerational. It's formed by women from diverse backgrounds who are working together to call time on gender inequality in all its form in our built environment. I caught up with Zoe to discuss this issue and the work of Part W, in particular the Alternative List campaign, their first campaign and one which simply asked if we did not have the list of men who had previously won the prestigious Royal Institute of British Architects Royal Gold Medal, who would be on that list instead? Who were the architects and who were the women who had been overlooked, forgotten or ignored? From there, we discuss more broadly the challenges faced by women working in the built environment and architecture. And we discuss, as you heard in the opening clip of Zoe, about how the work of architects is currently valued in awards and other systems. First, though, I asked Zoe to tell us where she got started and what triggered in her life the need and momentum to find time to work to make change. The, the short overview is that in 2018, I invited around 20 women who work variously across the built environment industry to the first in a number of informal gatherings um, that we held, fueled by crisps and drinks. And the group continues to be made up of people who work in planning and placemaking, sustainable transport design, um, architecture, design education, design journalism. When we first met, I asked that we, we start by talking about the issues women face in the built environment so we could map out. I, I talk about it a bit like a pollution map of sort of the, the hot points where there are problems of women being disadvantaged in the built environment. And then from, from there, from, that in, it's from those initial discussions and, and reflections, we then began to generate our first ideas and first campaigns that called for change. So that's the perhaps sort of the short overview of the origins. There's then a, a kind of a longer backstory to how the idea for, group, for the group started in my mind. And that's more linked to my personal frustrations around uh, kind of politics and socio-political barriers and feeling, feeling really very alarmed by some of the events that were happening and, and wanting to contribute to positive change, but feeling unsure of how I could best uh, flex my professional expertise to make a, 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 a tangible contribution. So to, to expand on, on, on that, perhaps in, in, in 2016, I was really frustrated and, and, and sort of um, concerned about the, the, the threats that we were seeing to, to human rights and, and civil liberties at an international level. And in 2017, I went along to the inaugural Women's March and I... I really, really enjoy these moments of, of people, of peaceful protest, of people coming together that, that I find very energizing and, and joining together with, with a shared set of, of missions and having voice and learning from speakers also who sort of you know attend attend such such events. So that march was quite key. I, I think it might be into that, I think it might be interesting just kind of pulling on this thread around protest in cities and spatial justice. It might be relevant to, re to refer to the observation made by, by Leslie Kern in her book Feminist City, where she, she talks about, um, in her chapter, City of Protest, she talks about how cities 
as being these opportunities of place for activism. Um, there's sort of the energy and the solidarity and the allyship that you get during those moments, but also noting an important sort of important recognition of protest spaces can, can also um, reproduce systems of privilege and, and, and repression. And, and in that one must acknowledge, um, I think, and sort of be cognizant of the very real risks that there are for black and indigenous people, for people of color, for trans people, and how the very, uh, the very idea of the march in and of itself with its emphasis on, on motion normalizes an assumption of able-bodiedness. And, and looped into this, of course, is the, the tragic fact that in protest contexts where there is very often likely to be a, a police presence, there is a sharp reality that women cannot rely on police as being uh, a force for protection indeed, as we know so starkly, the absolute opposite can be true. So having gone on that march and feeling curious and, and energised and, and thoughtful, I, I wanted to learn more and sort of listen more. So I went along to the, the local branch meetings of the Women's Equality Party. And that meant that I was starting to learn much more about the impact of austerity, cuts to funding and to services within housing, the, the sort of the data around homelessness and the way in which women are uh, in particularly affected by that. And so listening to these conversations around um, the impact of closures of libraries, of daycare centres, um, closure and underfunding of health clinics and, and family support centres and listening for myself as someone who works on educational, cultural and community projects through my ears, what I was hearing was, this was to me, this was about spatial austerity, you know, closure of incredibly valuable spaces. So then I thought, well, kind of how do I, how do I potentially intersect these issues of civil rights, women's rights and design? What, what could I do? How, you know, how could I kind of help? And I, um, I myself am an, a, a director of a design studio, which is a, I operate as a, as a collaborative network of experts who I bring together on project by project. So that's sort of a non-traditional design business as a small network of um, experts who, who balance also um, their kind of other interests alongside us, us collaborating. So for me, it was absolutely kind of inevitable and inherent to the way in which I, I work and practice and also teach. So at this junction to say, well, I, I mean, I, I, I can't make, make sort of this, decision or understand how I, I could help or how we could help on my own it was inherent for me not to not to seek to try and take steps on my own but to sort of invite others to come together and reflect and then think about what we could do and then from there to then start making some kind of collective act um, out of an initial set of discussions and thinking. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago you had a maybe maybe was it your first public campaign really which is to do with the alternative list and the ORABA gold medal and certainly you came to as the collective came to a lot of public attention then and became part let's say of more general and certainly international discourse where there is always a focus on that medal and how it's awarded um, often called one of the most significant prizes in architecture do you want to talk a little bit about that, that campaign how it might have galvanized or clarified some of the things you were thinking about and your values and your sets of actions and what the impact of working on that was on the collective? Yeah, for sure. So I suppose one of the things that we kept coming back to in our early discussions was the issue of representation or underrepresentation, the way in which um, the work of women is so often overlooked and isn't isn't acknowledged and sort of given kudos recognition and we were talking about this and we were talking we were talking about that point of acknowledgement recognition value someone said oh well just last week the most recent gold medal has been allocated and it's gone to to a white man, and um, you know, this is an this is an example. The award system systems is an example of where women are, are are have not been given the same recognition as as men, and indeed, of course, that um, that is very much the case too of people who are black, people who are from underrepresented backgrounds. So we looked at the. I mean, it's kind of almost a sort of a coincidence of timing that. I mean, we were we looked at the the Royal Institute of British Architects gold medal 
we could have been looking at the Pritzker Prize, the Japanese Imperial, you know, the sort of the data is 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 really exactly the same, really around um, lack of women being given recognition through those award systems. I mean, very quickly we we spotted that when you look at that list, which is of the recipients who have been given that medal, which has been going since 1848, when you go into the headquarters of the of the RIBA in London on the wall on the left hand side as you go in are carved these names in marble and we saw that when you look at the data of that then in a through a gendered lens that when we started our conversation at that point there was only one woman who was on that list in her own right also something that i think is worth being aware of about that particular medal it's given to somebody who is considered to have made a significant contribution to architecture either directly or indirectly so indirectly means that we're then also opening up this conversation around people who have made a extraordinary contribution as architectural historians or as patrons patrons of the arts clients and i i just kind of um sort of <laughs> flippantly said oh well you know if this is the list what would it look like if it was the alternative you know what would the alternative list be if we were to reverse this if this is one woman in what then was 172 years, what would it look like if we, if, you know, if this was, you know, who were all the women who have been missed out? What would it look like if this was effectively an all female list? And so that, that was our first, that was our first public campaign. And we ran that by taking to social media and very, very, very simply, really, each of us, uh, the, the core members of Part W took a piece of paper wrote on there the name of a woman who they felt has done amazing work and the year when that person could have been given the award and then we have a hashtag we are part w and so everyone sort of took a selfie posted it on on social media and it really it really really took off and um when we kind of mischievously hooked it on to this <laughs> launching this on the same day when the gold medal was being awarded in in February of that year and in no means you know are we saying that anybody who has been given that medal doesn't deserve it but surely women do as well and then also we wanted to we wanted to see there being change going forward in in you know in, in the direction of things and so what we then did was that we we were told the gold medal only really was receiving around sort of six, eight nominations a year because those nominations, it's nominations that are put forward for a judging panel to consider who should be given the award. And what we wanted to avoid or to challenge and no wasn't possible that it couldn't be that, that, that the judges were saying, well, no women were put forward. And so we, we wanted to know that amazing women were on the table to be considered so so then the next step was that we within the group we in kind of on social media we would say if you want to support a nomination being made for Eva Jurekna get in touch with Christine Murray you know sign sign your name add a letter of support if you want to um, support a nomination for Dr Sharon Agretta Sutton get in touch with Sarah Aki Bogan Yemi Aladdin, and you know sign over here you know put your give your support to the the submission being made for Kate McIntosh etc etc and then also encouraging others to do the same so that um, you know was amazing that then we we learned that say you know Alicia Alicia Fisher um, of Migrants Bureau um, was putting forward Yas, Yasmin Lari um, you know someone else was putting forward Amanda Levite etc etc so this again was a kind of a, a, a not just us taking action but encouraging others to to do so as well and we heard you know we kind of heard on the great fund that Yvonne Farrell and Shelley McNamara were being put forward and so then you know it was absolutely amazing then then you know then we heard in in 2020 we heard that duo as as Grafton Architects were given the the medal and then again as well um, you know in all this as I as I said drawing attention as well to the fact that the gold medal had never been given to any architect who was black and so then absolutely amazing when we heard that um, David Adjaye had been put forward and that he won the, the the 2020 medal so that those are our first two those are our first two campaigns which or sort of uh, two legs of 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 a campaign, um, which then I suppose the second part of of your question around of what that then kind of allowed us to do that because that got quite a lot of traction. Um, our campaign was sort of featured variously in a number of the journals and so on. Um, we quite swiftly got a, a a quite good social media following, and I think because we were off, we you know we were inviting people to get involved, and you know people. 
people like being part of something and you know joining in and that's what we wanted and particularly because you know we very much feel that we you know we don't have all the solutions we very much want to give agency to other people to to be getting involved and being part of this kind of gender equal change so that was then because we'd gained quite a lot of traction um, that gave us sort of gave us quite quickly helped us to find our voice um, to become relatively well known in the sector um, as agitators and also crucially gave us an, an opportunity and a basis to then start connecting with other groups and bringing people together and, and, and sort of to continue since that first launch to keep challenging and engaging and bringing others into both public and sometimes also more more sort of intimate and private dialogues around gender inequalities in placemaking and design so so there's this sort of there's there's the, the public work and engaging with others getting others involved and then also there is the the behind the scenes scenes work of which there is a lot um, a lot of behind the scenes sort of um work around the sort of allocating and sharing and, and, and developing actions together yeah and i, I mean i guess uh... Not to dwell on the pragmatics of it. I mean, at the moment, you're still operating voluntarily. Is that correct? And I guess, as you said, capitalizing on other infrastructures or groups that can work with your, you know, you can combine forces. But how does how does that work? I mean, it's still entirely voluntary and you're doing it for the alongside, let's say, other work and other yeah. parts of your practice life and for all of you. So- we no, it's it, it, it's it's really valuable to to talk finances um, because that's really you know sort of the the economics of women's work is massively important within this, and it's something that we're really conscious of within a context where seventy percent of unpaid labour is un, under, undertaken by women. When we're sort of talking about um, you know caring responsibilities, looking after you know, looking after neighbours, um, caring for children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so we very much are working on shifting to a position where we are able to pay ourselves on a project by project basis or a stipend so that people within Part W, their work is is kind of valued and recognised because it would, we're cognizant of the, of not wanting to, of of, of believing that what we're doing is valuable and not wanting to be part of perpetuating that problematic cycle, that loop of only, you know, only those who maybe are from quite comfortable backgrounds are able to undertake activism work. You know, that's that's a real, real problem in and of, it, of itself. So we are now, the as conveners, we do pay ourselves a, a stipend and we fundraise by various things but we uh we always ask for for fees to give talks and lectures and we very very rarely talk for free um because we think in you know that that then just would be part of participating in a system that says that women should undertake work for free or also make change for free that's something we we challenge so we we have speaker fees. Um, we invite sponsorship. We have some people who sponsor us kind of month on month. Um, we because they like what we're doing, and that's that's a kind of an unrestricted funding. And then we charge very reasonable fees for people to 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 promote um, opportunities within our month, monthly newsletter. And then also we fundraise for specific campaigns or specific projects. So we try to we try to sort of build up our finances in different ways, both restricted and unrestricted funding to then be able to pay ourselves. And hopefully as we grow, we'll be able to keep keep growing that um, because we think, you know, the sort of the economics of this is really, really important. Otherwise, we potentially would be participating in the problem ourselves. And of course, you continue to grow because you continue to need to address very many questions and issues that exist within built environment not least as you already touched on earlier on about barriers of access to or recognition of women in in practice could you maybe talk a little bit more about the kind of contemporary conditions that are are um, affecting women in in architectural practice and in the wider built environment yes rec- i mean recognition is recognition of work is something that's very very cent- central to 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 what we do around um because there's a cycle so and we're quite interested in the sort of the joining of the dots of issues because the awards is an example of a kind of a moment of inequality within what then becomes quite cyclical so with awards comes a lot of associated co- column inches and coverage in press 
your work, your practice is being featured in in journals, in books, etc. Um, you know, getting more potentially getting more invitations to to speak to be on judging panels. So then the practice then gets more recognition. So then potential clients might see, oh, this is a practice who we might want to work with and to sort of invite those practices, you know, for opportunities. That, that is a kind of a cyclical problem that that kind of lack of coverage then hits in so many other areas um you know it's not just about the award it's about what that then leads to or doesn't lead to and sort of the limitations so the second the sort of the then connected point also to that of course is lack of recognition means then a lack of role models and lack of role models in practice is really problematic for a next generation you know who are maybe studying and there's this tie-in I mean, we would argue there needs to be, a again, connecting of the dots, a sort of a linking with the really high rates of attrition within the industry. So 50% of the intake into schools of architecture at the moment identify as female, but still the rate of those who are gaining chartership and remaining in the sector is really, really low. There's a really high dropout rate. Now, a future architect isn't going to look up to a brilliant woman who started out as an engineer or project manager or architect and then left the profession because the pay was too low, the maternity pay, you know, was dreadful because she was overlooked for promotion, you know, because every time she went on, you know, on a site visit, the, the foreman would only answer questions posed to her male counterpart. And then, you know, she, she left, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this doesn't give role models. We need we need role models of you know amazing people who identify as, as female from different social economic backgrounds who are running jobs getting recognition being valued happy in their work staying in the profession long term you know then getting the press co- coverage the recognition and are valued and you know those people then become you know role models for a next generation so there's then another point around pay within architecture we know that we know that low pay um, well, low fees, low fees translates into low salaries. And we know that that is going to hit hardest those who are female, those who are from disadvantaged backgrounds, those who don't have private means to support them in low paid work or who are making their way up the career ladder. And the Royal Institute of Architects, they report year on year on the average pay of what is being paid. But that's just reporting on a bad situation. That isn't saying that you know women and men should be being, um, you know, equally properly paid for what is often very stressful work and should be being paid well for safe, efficient, joyful buildings. So we need to, you know, there really needs to be a, a, a transformation, and that's really that. It, that is important for everybody within the sector. But as I've as I've indicated, in, you know, really important for for women because. Poor pay then also means lack of access to childcare, you know, to, you know, not having, you know, practices, not sort of scrabbling around to, to sort of do the baseline, but, you know, really to, you know, support women and men, you know, having families, you know, being able to afford to have families and then being able to afford to come back into work, you know, after maybe um, taking some time out, you know, starting, you know, starting a family, etc. So that's, and that's, you know, that's kind of positive economics, you know, staff retention is, has a huge value. There's, you know, there's a massive cost to keep kind of retraining people again and again. So that's, you know, that's just, that's the sort of the positive economics of, of, of equity. Lastly, I suppose one of the points, one of the things I think then also to say is equity within procurement systems. So from the point of view of, of, of winning work and female-led practices and diverse practices doing well and growing their practices, we really lack deeply equitable procurement methods. Um, there's a sort of cycle of how buildings are commissioned and which which tends to see often those who are of a certain practices of a certain scale and also those who maybe have prior experience, you know, only a practice that has done a bridge gets to do a bridge. And and what that and, and also in you know, sort of the huge levels of you know of insurance that sometimes are required. You know, I was talking to someone recently who um, was applying for a, a public housing project, which the total construction was sort of two million pounds worth of construction value, but the practice was expected to have something like ten million pounds of insurance. You know, which is, you know, immediately that means that the well-established, well-funded practices right now, um, often those practices are sort of established in the seventies and eighties. You know, the sort of boom time means that young practices, non-traditional practices, female-led practices are so often being overlooked because, 
the setting of diverse, you know, sort of diversity and inclusion criteria means that in in the frameworks, it always tends to, to favor well-established practices rather than sort of, you know, the kind of the top, you know, the top big firms cutting out female energetic younger businesses and 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 until that changes the sector is limiting opportunity and innovation and that you know that means society isn't being served by the most creative holistic forward thinkers who you know bring diverse lived experiences to their creative work yeah i mean specifically on the question of attrition which which i think is a is a difficult one but not everything's rosy in architectural education or in academia or in practice that relates to education in terms of um, equality and fairness and equal access either. But let's say for a moment, this is also my experience that 50, sometimes more percent of the students you're working with, even in the final year, identifying as female and you rarely ever notice the opposite. You know, it, it just isn't isn't kind of part of the landscape. There's women and men and others and that's 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 great. But if there's an attrition happening into practice and across the long term in practice, what have you identified as being some of the causes for that and how do we address them? Because it's too, sim- too simple to say, but if the 50% or mo- the majority of the 50% continued into practice, are we more likely to have a chance of, of, of you know, redressing the balance of equality among, among people? Because they're simply there to, you know, not simply there to, <laughs> to just be there, but but they don't disappear out of our out of our kind of wider professional landscapes, which is tending to happen. So, again, I mean, I think it's 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 a jigsaw of elements. So and I've I mean, I, I'm, I may repeat myself a little bit on some of the things that I've that we would suggest, um, which I think, uh, you know, again, kind of you know, fee, fees and salaries. Um, and and I think that also that's really important so that uh, a young generation is starting out feeling that this is a kind of work and an area of work which is sustainable for them you know which which, you know you're sort of getting you know reasonably well paid for often long hours and and you know a lot of responsibility as well and so that that really needs to be addressed but of course there's no you know there's no point in in just talking only about salaries if we're not also talking about fees. So, you know, there's a real need for the institute, I think, for the institutes and, you know, so this is the, the, in the UK, the RIBA. Also, I think, you know, there's a role for the ARB to be being much, much more supportive and proud of and arguing the case for the value that, good architecture brings because at the moment without there being any pay scales and of course fee scales were 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 removed under what then was a uh, what then was a Thatcher government in as a bid to be competitive but what that then means is you know there's a kind of a you know a sort of a race to the bottom on you know on fees and that always is going to favor bigger practices that may be able to bear those peaks and troughs so fees and salary to be supportive of people throughout their career and for women to feel that they also also are able and you know and men as well of course that you know there should be really good level of maternity paternity pay so that people are able to you know, step sort of step back for a period which is a crunch time you know the sort of the moment around starting a family within architecture also so often tends to be the moment when there might be that next progress sort of career progression so much more support at that moment also if women if women do choose to to step back for a spell to then have really good support as ret- kind of through returning to work um, in a sort of mentorship schemes so that you're not falling behind because then of course that contributes to gender pay gap and to you know sort of missing out on the next promotion purely because you took a you know a year out to support having a, a child that's you know that's that's in many ways that's terribly unfair then also I think more flexible kinds of work and more support for that for one of the rare, the rare silver linings of all that has happened in the last 19 months maybe being more of a recognition that flexible work is possible and that people don't have to sort of be sitting at their desks you know from 
eight o'clock in the morning until seven o'clock in the evening just kind of drilling out work but actually that there be a better there be a better work-life balance and I think also with with work-life balance that that can contribute to improved mental health and 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 wellness which of course is you know really important to feel that you're and, and to address issues of of burnout which again I think is is something that is problematic I think a culture I mean there is a culture which unfortunately does start sometimes in schools of architecture around the notion of working very very long hours that that's a kind of that there's a sort of a competition to that you know who can who can do the most all-nighters and I you know personally I kind of find that that an absolute nonsense because it's really (laughs) that suggests that you know, somewhere along the line things are really inefficient you know that's not a healthy kind of a work but it's also undervaluing the work that we do you know our clients don't pay us to kind of work at three o'clock in the morning so there's this sort of quite this quite macho culture of who can work longest hardest and that's unhealthy and I think doesn't favor people who you know who don't want to participate in that sort of quite actually quite aggressive sort of approach to you know how jobs are run and that you know that impacts on 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 both women and men and actually I've spoken I mean I'm interested when I'm always curious about how when I I have this discussion kind of talk about the work of of part w with people who identify as male there are so many people who come forward and say you know I, I hate the kind of the aggressive culture of the construction industry it's you know I don't I don't want to participate in this kind of um you know these sort of behaviors that I don't I don't agree with I don't you know I don't want to be I don't want to be labeled in this way and so I think you know there's a real need to both within education and within practice to actually hold up examples and again spot you know spotlight fantastic examples of practices who are working in healthy ways supporting all of their staff in a really holistic way and and doing fabulous work you know that's the kind of the perfect set of of dots um you know and to to challenge the notion that to get ahead you have to work in you have to adopt not very healthy patterns all of that you know that impacts women but it inter you know it kind of impacts the whole of whole of the industry and there's there's so much scope for transformation there mm. yeah it, it, it <laughs> it's it is as you say multifactorial and it's 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 very difficult to to unpack it or to be precise about what it is there's many there are many things i mean I don't know if this is correct or not, but sometimes I do worry or wonder or question a little bit about this this emphasis on awards just just generally because I mean to 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 you know to to win an Oribeigo medal regardless of whatever is 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 an exceptional person. It's a person who has who has achieved something beyond let's say everyday life and has not done that by accident. Has done that actually on purpose and has worked incredibly hard and made decisions in his or her life to get to where they want to be this would be my experience of of encountering people like that and that's fine you know everybody needs people who push at that level and kind of in all art forms or disciplines or creative cultural acts or or society to to lead new thinking and change and that does require immense commitment to your practice the thing when you start talking about pay and family and and other things it's almost like the middle of the curve needs champions and advocates too right where we can construct or pretty ordinary but sometimes as you say ordinary lives that are doing really good work at whatever level you want to do and that's about the work you do is valued but the work is also valued beyond by the profession but also beyond the profession into wider society and i'm always curious Maybe you've maybe you've already said it, and I'll have to listen back. But how do we how do we support that cohort and that group to say it's okay to be, you know, as good as you can be and to achieve the best you can, and we're going to reward you for that, and off you go. And that actually most of the world is constructed like that, and the exceptional will always be exceptional, notwithstanding the absolute need to recognise far more people in in architecture at that level who are achieving exceptional things who just get ignored for various historical prejudicial you know economic reasons um that has to happen too um but i really don't know how to do that even in education about how we avoid the championing of the exceptional or how we avoid 
those people who um, appear to uh, sort of always achieve well within an education setting being the ones that are tacitly or implicitly somehow implied as being what we all should be aiming to achieve. Um, but maybe that's 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 just that's the job. Is that what we have to part of what we have to figure out? Maybe uh, it's such a it's such an interesting question, and I think that your point the the point that you're you're very articulately raising can be questioned within architecture. But I think it's it's society. I think in so many ways it's societal, and so yes, every industry you know could be kind of challenging this in its own way. I think what you're describing there, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. It, it's certainly an issue. I think it's a, a structural issue. And so, then, where can we then disrupt that within within our industry under this kind of umbrella of of a globalized capitalist structure? The beginning of your question actually reminded me of something that the journalist and critic and, and teacher uh, Laura Mark said at the beginning of our awards challenging campaign a couple of years ago. Laura said, well, you know, if we can't be trusted to have equitable awards, maybe we shouldn't have awards. And it's a great little neat little phrase, but it says an awful lot more, I think, about, you know, problems in value systems and, and you know, and what we value and what we hold up as ideal. And I think that, um, you know, within architecture, we, you know, there is a kind of, there's, there certainly is a, a tendency to be drawn towards the biggest, the shiniest, the kind of glitziest sort of projects. You know, that's that's certainly a problem. So there needs to be, there needs to be an absolute disruption to what kind of work is con considered valuable and important. And into this, I think, has to be folded. You know, it's, it's so important to then be bringing in the thread of sustainability, um, you know, and, and climate cat catastrophe, because for, you know, for far too long, I think attention and kudos has been granted to projects which are, you know, so often stunningly unsustainable and you know that's I think that's a real failing on the part of actually of the kind of the gatekeepers of power as those who for decades have been sort of making the decision about what is considered to be important valuable held up as an example of inverted commas ideal work which has been dominated so much by I mean by gatekeep you know sort of the the people in those positions of power I mean judging you know sort of judging panels awards educators publishers commissioners event organizers where consistently there's been this culture of platforming in all sorts of different you know platforming in different ways but promoting kinds of architecture which are deeply environmentally and socially unsustainable that needs a real disruption, as you say, to revalue and to draw attention and to spotlight and encourage a good kind of architecture that is, I think, can be much more humble, but socially driven and in many ways, you know, socially, environmentally, much more useful for local communities. But how do we get away from, you know, how do we get away from a desire to, uh, that I think exists amongst many for uh, recognition to come through column inches and prizes and so on? How do we escape that? That, that, I, that I don't have an answer to. I think that's a very human problem. But I think, you know, the sort of the in-between is maybe the kind of the recognition that is finally starting to be allocated to social housing projects, um, you know, more local community-led projects. That's a, you know, that, that's a very, very valuable interruption to what we value, but it is still relying on kudos awards, you know, features in, in publications, and I suppose a kind of a quite strong human tendency to want to be, you know, want to be recognised and wanting to be noticed. Yeah, and speaking of human tendencies or human impacts, I mean, what impact has the the work that you've been doing had on your own practice and i mean five years maybe or so is i mean i, I imagine you've been thinking about these questions for all of your engagement with architecture i i expect but if part w's were sort of born in 15 16 and came you know moved from then what influence has it on has it had on your work and on your attitudes and 
actions, I suppose, more generally in architecture? So I think I mean, there's a couple of examples. There's sort of, I suppose, there's, there's partly an approach to projects and then there's also approach to practice structure. In terms of project work, I've, I've sort of been enjoying the lesson around different ways of listening I think a kind of a different sort of empathy within within projects um an example that I might give is there's a school project that I've been I've been working on this past year and it's it's an all-girls school and I was approached because the the clients had decided to male-led clients had decided to make some sort of unilaterally had decided they were going to make some changes um, to to some of the design and there was a sort of a gentle uproar from from an an all-female user group and the client said okay we all right we we haven't got this right we will we'll reevaluate." and at that point I was commissioned to really and what I sort of said when I first arrived on and, and ex- very gladly accepted that commission was to, to start out by listening and to listening to the stories of these of these girls and these pupils and sort of get an understanding of their feelings about the the their space and place and what they valued and what they wanted and then as a as a designer to then be starting to I think to bring a kind of an empathy, a sort of a listening, perhaps a more feminist approach, which I don't, you know, I don't think that that, you know, is necessarily, um, you know, only possible because I am female. But I think what was happening there was, as I say, a kind of an empathy, a listening, a sort of an, an, an understanding of, of what had gone before, rather than perhaps a, an, an approach or an attitude of, we know what's right you know this is what you're getting you know we're the expert architects and you know here's here's the solution and actually the solution to come out of listening and talking and and learning from a client group so so for me that's a a more you know perhaps a more kind of almost grassroots or sort of sensitive kind of approach which you know isn't simply because I identify as female but um you know it's just a it, it's a more a more kind of client-led sort of collaborative sort of approach on on the on the project then actually there was a project which I really really enjoyed it was a tiny little project um but called the reading retreat and myself and Benedetta Rogers collaborated on that together and that was shortlisted for the AJ Small projects in in 2019 what was striking about that project was team makeup and I really enjoyed the fact and it was it was very very unusual that that was an almost all-female team one of the so Toby Pullman um, of Black Horse Workshop was one of the lead fabricators but he was working with two other female fabricators the engineer was female the client team female there was this lovely moment when myself and and Benny Rogers went along to the unveiling of this little reading room that were, had been designed and and the pupils organized this sort of ribbon cutting um for their new reading room and it was it was that kind of really amazing to be in this space where i think over 100 primary school children we're doing this wonderful unveiling of this new project and the headmistress said and here are the here are the architects who designed this and you have um you know a hundred young people turning their faces to see two female designers you know that was a kind of a glorious moment and you know that that felt actually very rewarding and very enriching um you know it's a kind of a small contribution but maybe you've just just shifted the dial on you know a notion of what an architect might look like or who they might be or what they might wear um and how they talk to you you know um etc so you know that's that that's a that's a kind of about a you know sort of interrupting you know who an architect might be and again that comes back to role models which we've talked about and then i think the other thing is really being becoming much more in terms of the structure of my small design studio is becoming more aware actually and more consciously positive about the collaborative way in which I organize my studio as as a network of experts who come together on a project by project basis of really recognizing how valuable that is and being more aware that it 
it is not a coincidence that my collaborative team is predominantly female-led who predominantly have other caring responsibilities um, challenges around health who need to be able to work in flexible ways and that 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 sort of suits in so many ways that suits women who have these other sorts of these other kind of needs that 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 works and that that works for women who have a diverse set of skills and diverse set of experiences to have this more flexible model and I think I possibly have the work of Part W means that I've become more aware that that's not a kind of a random coincidence. For people who are wishing to and wanting to make change and to participate in things that will allow them to change at a variety of scales I guess at the everyday practice level up to more large-scale infrastructures how would you advise people get started or what what should we be doing i think at the beginning it's quite important for there to be quite a probably having some quite honest conversations with oneself whatever position that that you're in around thinking about thinking about what more a sort of a a kind of a self-examination um you know if one's own position one's position potentially potentially kind of potentially positions of of privilege where one can have a voice where one can can make change in that and having that really deep think about what you you can do can be I think is quite a hard conversation and it has to be and it's important because there need you know there needs to be that that sort of honesty um you know I, I don't think I don't think anybody could sort of look around them and say yeah, you know, definitely my office is totally equitable, you know, employment and interview and staff retention processes are absolutely top notch, or it is all totally, you know, gender, racially um, unbiased, you know, doing great. And it's just, you know, it's, it's just not the case, you know, none of, you know, none of us are there. We all, you know, all of us, when you do that kind of, um, that interrogation you know none of us is doing all that we can be doing and you know sort of everyone can can be doing better and and you know and so um you know can can do more so I think there's that sort of honest honest discussion with oneself and then you know if if you feel able to do so to sort of then you know open that dialogue out with colleagues and co-workers which also you know can be again quite a kind of a, a complicated but necessary conversation I think then there's then the step of sort of self-educating, reading, listening, learning, um, you know, changing the sort of shifting the shifting the dial on the reference points that that we look to showing up. I mean, showing up. And this is certainly something I would say and ask and hope for from more people who identify as male. I mean, we find it it's very, very noticeable that in our own lectures and talks that we organise and also that those that we go to that are about gender equity, the audience generally is all female, you know, in the way in which people of colour don't create racism, you know, women, women don't generally, you know, may contribute towards, you know, generally didn't create sexism in in the first place. So there's a, there's a real, real need um, for, for there to be, you know, all genders coming together to talk about these issues, to, you know, to sort of educate and to learn. And I think then, and, you know, and from there, from there, hopefully to sort of see the value and the positive opportunities to make, to make change. I think the, you know, the sort of the self-educating is, you know, listening, reading, you know, reading things like Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, a tough but really necessary book men explain things to be by rebecca solnit then within you know within within sort of architecture then i think things things like a gendered profession and also listening to uh, some fantastic talks by the likes of leslie loco you know that you can uh, listen to online which you know that's also kind of the, the absolutely necessary discussion about inequalities in uh, across across race, across background, across experience, across gender, you know, reading texts like why I am no longer talking to white people, um, talking to white people about race. So I think there's that kind of that, um, there's that sort of self-educating step, um, you know, educating ourselves, you know, together. Uh, actually, Part W, just as part of Black History Month, we invited others to suggest texts that they're reading um, and to all commit to reading 
you know, at least reading one text in, you know, that month to sort of participate in that self-education sort of, or, you know, all of us to open our eyes to, you know, equitable imbalances that are happening daily. And then from there also to be, you know, to sort of be part of making the change and you know, sort of calling things out, right, you know, writing the letters, writing the emails, you know, making the odd phone call, putting together the petition, you know, dear event organizer, I would love to attend the talk that you're organizing, but um, you know, I feel unable to do so because the panel that you are putting forward is all male and all white. You know, dear publisher, my office and I would love to buy your texts, but we've noticed that your key, your new publication on key buildings of the 21st century contains 100 work by architects and only three of them are female you know and actually we'd you know part w kind of do you know quietly doing that sort of thing behind the scenes you know kind of knocking on the door challenging asking for change and it's so necessary and i think the more people who feel that they're able to kind of call these things out and and challenge and speak up then hopefully and also i think within that as well because that takes quite a lot of bravery you know it's a it it's hard work you know and can actually at times sometimes be you know we have from time to time been on the receiving end of quite aggressive kind of behaviors in you know in response to sort of calling these things out so then also I think having having your group um you know sort of or joining an existing group or kind of um uh, I remember Alicia Fisher using a lovely expression of find your coven, find your find your team, because it, it's so valuable to be able to bounce these things off other people and say, hey, you know, have you noticed that if you notice that that um, that climate podcast over there that they've got running, you know, is does you know doesn't feature any, you know, any people, any people who are black, you know, am I, you know, am I right? Are you, you know, I, I'm thinking of sending an email. Will you send an email as well? Yeah, no, I'll, you know, I'll do that. And then you kind of, you know, develop a sort of a bravery through feeling that you're doing something together on your own. It's quite intimidating when, you know, when you're doing it with others, then it becomes energizing and, you know, and proactive. And I think sort of, um, you know, a sort of a collective bravery, I think is really, really important within this and, um, you know, essential. So hopefully that kind of um, having the com- tough conversations, self-educating and then speaking up and speaking up with others hopefully those are some some suggestions that I hope might be useful and then to be able to apply those principles you know whether you're in practice whether you're in academia you know whether you're from an architectural background you know kind of working within engineering commissioning projects etc you know I think I think actually you know those sort of steps hopefully apply you know can be applied across across different areas. Thank you so much to Zoe for joining us on the podcast. And if you want to find out more about the work of Part W, you can find them on social media, but also on their website, which is part-w.com. That's part-w.com. Thank you for listening and thank you for your patience as we loaded up season three of the podcast. We are back again, as usual, in a fortnight with a new edition of the podcast. The music, as ever, is by Sinead Finnegan and it's played by the Dalmain String Quartet. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have, we'd ask you again to rate it on iTunes in particular, to share it far and wide in your Insta stories and on other platforms. Until next time, stay safe.